Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, God bless you. It's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. I am so thankful for a church that would host a big concert on Friday and invite all the neighborhoods. Uh, it is, it's great to be a church that invites people in so that we can love them more. Uh, and I see that over and over again in our church. We, uh, just a couple weeks ago, collected a thousand diapers to give to a women's shelter. Um, coming up, we're going to do a charity run that our church is helping to sponsor to fight human trafficking in the world. We're, we're a church that invites people in so that we can give more away. Uh, and that's who we've always been. And so I'm, I'm proud of our church and thankful for our church. So good to see that. Today, we're going to dive back into our series of studies called First Things, in which we're going through the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians, to the church in Galatia, where he's naming the first things of the faith, the things that he taught them at first, that they have started to stray away from and that he wants them to stick to. So as we get into our study of God's word this morning, let's take a minute. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have passed this text through the generations into our hands so that we might learn your ways, so that we might see your history, so that we might know your will for us. God, as we draw close to you this morning, draw close to us, pour your Holy Spirit into us that we might, that we might be filled with your love and your grace and a deep, deep knowledge of you. And may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All right, here we go. Uh, we have been reading through Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you've missed any of it, you can follow the podcast at reallife.la, catch up to where we are. But we're going to dive in, and today we're going to pick up with a, a moment that's, um, that's, that's actually profound. Because there's a tension in the Bible between two different messages. A message preached by the Apostle Paul and a message preached by James, the brother of Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary. And they were in a conflict in the first century world. So Galatians airs a lot of the church's dirty laundry. And today we're going to dive into this debate between these two great theologians and leaders of the church and look at what they had to say on uh, an important matter that shapes our faith today. We're going to start by reading from Paul in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, at verse 1. Uh, Paul now is writing to a group of Christians who have initially accepted the gospel that he preached, that they are saved by grace. Jesus died on the cross for them. All they have to do is believe, and they're free from following religious laws. They're now free just to be filled with the Spirit and go where Jesus wills. And these legalistic preachers have come from Jerusalem, uh, led by James. And the legalists are telling them, you have to go back and follow all the laws again. So that's the, the point at which Paul is speaking. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to the Word of God. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? 
when he says, did you receive the Spirit, he's talking about the manifestations of the Holy Spirit that the early church was experiencing. They were able to work miracles. They were praying for the sick, and the sick were being healed. Uh, lepers were cleansed. The paralyzed were walking. If you read the, the book of Acts, you can see some of the miracles that the early church did. And so as people, are, uh, uh, as people accept Jesus and decide to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit enters them, and they begin to manifest the power of the Holy Spirit in tangible ways. They speak uh, prophecies over people. They speak in tongues. They heal people. And Paul now says, look, those amazing, amazing things happened to you. The Spirit entered you. Those amazing things happened. Was it because you did something good and earned it? Or was it by grace because you believed? And it's a rhetorical question. He knows they believed and received the Spirit. They didn't do anything to earn it. Uh, verse 3, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? In other words, after receiving the Spirit as a gift, are you now going backwards to try to earn it by doing good works? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, in other words, by the good things that you do as a reward for being well-behaved, or by believing what you heard? Why try to earn by your own effort what God has already given you for free? If God has already given it to you as a gift, you don't have to go back and earn it. It's like this. Imagine a teacher decides that her students in her classroom need more rest. They'll be healthier people and better students if they have more rest. So instead of piling on more homework, she gives them some free time in which to just rest. And different students respond differently to this free gift from the teacher. A first student feels like, well, now I, I better earn it. She's given me this, this free time, and, and I need to, to, to pay her back for that. I need to do something good to be worth it, to deserve it. So that student takes the free time she's been given, and she uses the free time to do more homework. And she stays up even later at night doing more homework to try to earn the gift that the teacher's already given her. And as a consequence, she's more tired, and she's more angry. And she's more stressed, and she does even more poorly in school because of the free time that she's filling with extra homework. She hasn't appreciated the gift. She's ruined it. Then another student receives this gift of free time, and he thinks to himself, well, maybe homework just doesn't matter. If she thinks I don't have to do more of it, maybe I don't have to do any of it. And so he does even less homework than he was doing before. And his grades suffer for it. And he doesn't learn. He's not as educated. He doesn't know as much. Well, he's taken a perfectly good gift, and he's ruined it as well. A third student understands and appreciates the gift. She uses the gift of free time to rest, to be well-rested for school. And she's more focused, and she's healthier, and she's a better student. Well, that's how it is with the Holy Spirit. It's given as a free gift. Jesus died on the cross for us because he loved us, not because we did anything to earn it, not to evoke guilt from us, but because he loved us and wanted to save us. Why go and respond by trying to do more work now, to trying to earn God's love? He's already given it to you for free. Why would we ignore it and just become more reckless and more, more sinful? That's ignoring the gift as well. The right path is to appreciate and understand the gift and to respond in thankfulness. 
That's Paul's message to the Galatians. And he wants to make sure they're not turned astray by the legalists who have come to town and told them to go back and start following the law again. So now Paul is going to make a case for being saved by faith by appealing to the father of faith in the Hebrew scriptures, which is Abraham. He's going to go back to the book of Genesis. And he's going to talk about why Abraham was justified in God's eyes. Verse 6. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. Abraham was seen by God as being righteous, as being good, not because of what he did, but because he believed. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, the non-Jewish people, people who did not follow all the Jewish customs, didn't keep the Jewish law, they were going to be made right in God's eyes as well without taking on the Jewish law, just by believing in Jesus. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you, Jewish and non-Jewish. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So if you try to earn your way to heaven, if you try to earn God's law, by God's love by following all the laws, and you break even one, you failed. Trying to live up to the law is a curse because you can never do it. We've proven time and again, we as a species cannot live perfect, holy, lawful lives. Humanity as a species is made of liars and cheats. And so the law is a curse. It's a mirror that shows us the dirt on our face. It's not a washcloth that can clean it off. So, so those who try to rely on good works, who try to rely on the law, are cursed. Because all it does is show us that we're failures. Blessed are those who believe that Jesus died for them and that they are saved by God's grace as a free gift. Now, that's Paul's argument. But understand, Paul is arguing against legalists who have come from Jerusalem to Galatia and are leading the Galatians astray by saying, you can believe in Jesus all you want, but you still have to be religious legalists. You still have to follow every law in the the Jewish canon. You have to keep all the rituals and the holidays and circumcision and the dietary laws and the, the cleansing laws. You have to follow all of them. And they've come from Jerusalem where James, the brother of Jesus, is one of the head leaders. And so that's a lot of authority. When, you are the, when you're the brother of Jesus, you carry a lot of weight. And if James leans legalistic, so do his followers. The followers of James have come to Galatia and are leading Paul's disciples astray, turning them away from the freedom of grace and back to law. So now let's look at what James wrote. And obviously, James and Paul knew each other. They were obviously, they knew they were debating with each other. This, this tension in the Bible itself is not there by accident. They knew they were in an argument. Flip over to the book of James, written by the brother of Jesus, chapter 2, verse 14. And look at how James uses exactly the same uh, examples from the Hebrew Scriptures to argue against Paul. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? What good is it if you just believe and you have no good works? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister without clothes and is without clothes and daily food. 
If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. Faith without works is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. I will show you that I believe because I behave well. You believe that there is one God, good. That even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, your, your doctrine isn't what's going to save you. You can believe all the right stuff and still not live a right life. You foolish person, right? Uh, the, the, you can't win in this. Paul is calling the Galatians foolish. James is calling uh, his opponents foolish. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. So now James is going to use exactly the same argument that Paul did. Paul did, said, look at Abraham. God chose Abraham. And, and it was Abraham's faith, it was his belief that saved him. And now James is going to say, look at Abraham. Abraham did good works, and that's what saved him. When God told Abraham, take your son Isaac up the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice, Abraham obeyed, and God stopped him, God didn't require the sacrifice of Isaac, but it was Abraham's behavior, his obedience that saved him. So James and Paul are using the same example for contrary purposes. Uh, you see that his faith and his actions are, were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Huh. Well, this is a serious a family debate now. Uh, because, and this is written into the Bible. The, the, uh, the authors and compilers of the Bible know that this is a tension that's in the Scriptures. Really sophomoric uh, atheists out there like to look at this and say, ah, look, the Bible contradicts itself. No, no, they knew exactly what they were doing. They're debating a theological issue of the day, and that debate is captured in the biblical text itself. And the reason that's so important is because you and I should feel in our expression of faith a tension between our belief that we are saved by God's grace because he loves us and the moral commandments of the Scripture that we feel like we're supposed to uphold. What do you do with that? What happens if I don't follow the laws? If I, if I believe in Jesus today and I'm forgiven, but then tomorrow I sin, what happens? Isn't there a tension then between me wanting to believe and, and be saved by grace and yet me feeling obligated to do good things? I remember talking to a teenager when I was a youth pastor many years ago. And she said, I don't feel like I can decide to believe in Jesus because I think I might do something wrong the next day. Right? Well, the Bible knows that anxiety, and it accommodates it. And this is why theology is so important. This is why the debates of theology are so important. There are places in our faith where we're going to wrestle with tensions, and the Bible means to walk us through those tensions. And so it's captured this important one here. It captures this debate between Paul, who says, you're saved by faith, not by works, and James, who says, faith without works is dead. Now, they obviously knew each other. Galatians 1.19, Paul says, I went up and saw James, the brother of Jesus. They had met before. And on top of that, 
uh, the guys who have come to Galatia and the people with whom Paul is arguing have come from, Galatians 2.12, have come from James. He doesn't just say they came from Jerusalem. He says they came from James. And so Paul knows he's having a debate with the brother of Jesus. So in order to sort of flesh this out a bit, I want to show you how Paul, the apostle, perceived James, the brother of Jesus, and how James, the brother of Jesus, perceived Paul, the apostle. So uh, it, it might look a little bit like this. This is probably how Paul sees James and the people like James who come from Jerusalem. Stay tied. That's great. One of those. Very official. All right. So now this is how Paul, the apostle, most likely sees James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is James in Paul's eyes. Ladies and gentlemen of the court, do I not make a good case for you? Where does the law come from? It comes from God. And the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. You should impress it on your heads, on your doorposts. You should think about it when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night. You should teach it to your children. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The law of the Lord is perfect, and those who follow the law will be blessed. Joshua chapter 1. And those who don't follow the law should be punished. They should be stoned. Leviticus 24. And in my day, that meant having rocks thrown at you, you hippies. So follow the laws. That is most likely how Paul perceives a James. He thinks if you follow James, if you follow the legalists, you're going to end up like that. You're going to end up like all the religious legalists out there who burden people with a law that cannot save you, with a law that only exposes how broken you are. Now, this is how James most likely saw Paul. <clears throat> so, James up there in Jerusalem. Paul's traveling around starting churches. And most likely James thought of Paul somewhat in with a microphone on, breaking the microphone, that's good. All right. This is how James, the legalist, sees Paul, the preacher of freedom. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. It's all about the love, people. It's all about the love and the spirit in your heart. Don't let the man in Washington, I mean Jerusalem, don't let the man in Jerusalem put his, his laws on you. You're absolutely free in the spirit. It's all about love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. You can't buy me love. Everybody tells me so. What if we imagined a world without religious laws and we all just lived by the Spirit and everything was just grace and freedom and love and the Spirit and the law was on your heart and that's all you had to do was live for love? What if 
That's the world. You want a revolution like that? Well, we all want to change the world. Now, I can't actually do this uh, impression for uh, people under 30 today because uh, one kid saw me with these and said, is that Harry Potter? Is that who that is? So this is how James most likely sees Paul. Paul, I'm not going to take this off because it'll just make the microphone a mess again. Paul is going around teaching people that they are free from the law. And James and the people from Jerusalem have to be anxious. If people start living in freedom, doesn't that lead to recklessness? They're going to be a bunch of hippies. There's going to be no morality anymore. What happens if they live in that freedom? We need both of these voices in our expression of faith. We need both of these voices as we seek to follow Jesus. And that's why I'm happy that the scripture has captured this tension for us. We need the voice of Paul saying, you are absolutely saved by grace. Good works didn't get you there and they never will. Don't go back to depending on yourself and saying, I did it good enough. Don't forget that faith expresses itself in love, that good work should emerge from our faith as a sign of who we are, of how we've been transformed. Both voices are right, and we need both voices in our expression of faith. Let's, let's defend both, uh, both speakers. First, let's defend James. James is absolutely right. If we say we believe and then we do nothing with it, then we probably actually don't believe. He's absolutely right. And not only is he right, he's painfully relevant to modern-day modern American Christendom. And he starts with a brilliant example because he doesn't start with obeying the Sabbath laws and keeping the Sabbath day, which was the hot first century debate. He starts with something that would appeal to the compassionate. He says... If you have faith, if you say you have faith, and then you don't care for the poor, what good is it? And he's exactly right. Because if you do have faith, if you do love Jesus, the desire to care for the poor should naturally flow out of your heart. And he'll, he'll say all the other ones, well, keep the Sabbath day. If you don't believe in Jesus, I mean, if you believe in Jesus but don't keep the Sabbath, what kind of, what kind of faith is that? that? That will never lead to worship. How is it that you say you believe in Jesus and won't make time for him? If you don't keep the Sabbath day, you'll, you'll just have a weekend, not a day of worship. And that's, that's a relevant message to the modern American church. We have an overdeveloped sense of weekend and an underdeveloped sense of Sabbath. What happens if you say you have faith and then you never, never give money? You never tithe? The Bible says give 10% of your income to building the kingdom of heaven on earth. And most people who call themselves faithful people give a pittance, if anything at all. What, what good is that to say you believe? Jesus says your heart is where your treasure is. And if your treasure stays in your pocket, your heart did too. What, what good is it to say you, you believe and you never, you never share the faith with anyone? You never tell anyone about Jesus. You just hang out with people who are already Christian. Well, that, you don't have a heart for the shepherd at that point because the shepherd goes looking for lost sheep. James is absolutely right. You can't say you believe and then do nothing and expect that that is authentic. James' target is hypocrisy and laxity. Laxity that comes from hypocrisy. And that is a powerful that is a powerful message for the modern American church. But conversely, let's defend Paul as well. Because in the, in the landscape of the first century debates, Paul wins. 
Paul's voice will carry the day. When they have the Jerusalem Council in 50 AD and they get together in Jerusalem to debate whether or not circumcision is going to be required for converts, the answer is no. We're not going to impose the law on people converting to Christianity. We are saved by grace. Paul's voice will win. But, but Paul's voice is equally as important as James. And we don't, want to, we don't want to lose track of the reason Paul's voice is the powerful one. Paul would affirm, Galatians 2.10, they told me to care for the poor. In Jerusalem, they told me to care for the poor. And that was exactly the thing that I wanted to do. But you don't have to earn God's love. You can't. It's by grace that we are saved. Remember the thief on the cross next to Jesus, who, as far as we know, had lived a broken life. And at the end, when it's too late for him to do anything, all he does is turn to Jesus and say, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's by faith that we're saved. But faith should naturally express itself in love. Uh, a great uh, theologian of the 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, captures the tension between grace and the need to express what grace has done in us. He contrasts uh, what he calls cheap grace, a casual, lackadaisical kind of faith, from a costly grace, a grace that appreciates what Jesus has actually done. He writes this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, this is his contrast, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. James does not want us living in cheap grace. He wants us to understand that it was a costly grace that cost the life of his brother. And Paul wants us to remember, it's still grace. It's not works of the law. The way faith and works should correspond in our lives is like something I saw not that long ago uh, in our church. Uh, on a weekend, I baptized an 18-year-old. And when we baptize people uh, at the church, we give them a t-shirt that says made new on it. And we went out here in the courtyard at Valley Center and uh, got down in the, in the in-ground baptismal and, and baptized her. And I'll tell you something about these shirts. The shirts are cotton, and so they absorb water. So when you get down in that baptismal, you get soaked, and you carry it with you. But the, the words made new here are made out of a synthetic that doesn't absorb water. So they don't. You, there's one little part of your shirt that's dry when you come out of the water, and it's the word made new. I had never seen this before. She came up out of the baptismal, after her baptism, and she went and hugged one of her friends who was wearing a big fluffy sweater. And when she hugged her friend with a big fluffy sweater, this wet cotton shirt got her friend all wet. But when she pulled away, you could see the words made, made new spelled backwards across her sweater. 
because the letters hadn't absorbed any water. And so when she hugged her friend, there was one dry spot, and it said, made new across the sweater of the woman she had hugged. That, for me, is a great image of how we live out our faith. If when you come up out of the waters of baptism, which symbolize the fact that God, by His grace, has made us clean, if you come up out of the waters and you never go and love anyone, well, you probably haven't been made new. You can say you believe, you can say you have the right doctrines, but you haven't been made new because you're not doing the new things that Christ has set your heart free to do. If you go around doing good works, but you do it not out of love, but out of the law, you don't actually set anyone free. You, you go and you add an extra burden to them. What Jesus wants to do is to save us by his power, not ours. And then to send us out into the world in love, to pass on the mark that he has placed on us, that we have been made new by extending our arms in love and taking hold of people who need to be loved. So that when they step away from us, that, that part of Christ that has made us new is passed on to them. That's what Jesus wants to do in your life today. So if you've never said yes before, say yes now. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you walked this earth when we were broken and in open rebellion. And you died on the cross at our hands when we did not deserve it because you loved us. And then you rose from the dead, setting us free from the grip of death on our lives. Jesus, as an act of thankfulness, not legalism, Pour your spirit into our hearts and send us out into the world made new to love people in your name that as we embrace them, we leave the mark of your presence on them. For anybody who's never prayed it before and wants to do so now, we ask Jesus, come into our hearts and forgive our sins. We ask you to be our Lord. We thank you for being our Savior. Call us to new life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.